0: All right, Westside, can we thank God for the giving that, we took, that took place last year? Yeah, clap those hands. One thing you may not be realizing what you're doing right now, you're applauding yourselves, but also thanking God because all of God's work takes all of God's people, amen? We can't do this without you guys. So grab your Bibles. We are going to go through the reading of our text this morning. We will be in 1 Kings chapter 22. If you don't have your Bible with you, there is a pew Bible right there in front of you. And if you're unsure where 1 Kings is, chapter 22, page 336 in that pew Bible. Page 336, we are going to be reading through 40 verses this morning, so if you don't have your Bible, you're going to be lost. Please follow along and have your eyes on Scripture. When you get there, when you get there, look up at me and say, Jesus. Jesus. All right. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, because it is, and because we are thankful to God for preserving His word for us, and for all eternity, you can respond with, thanks be to God. 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Have your eyes on Scripture. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all of the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Shanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king." And the messenger who went to summon Micah said to him Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he came when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him. Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, "'Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. "'I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, "'and all the host of heaven standing beside him "'on his right hand and on his left. "'And the Lord said, "'Who will entice Ahab that he may go up "'and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? "'And one said one thing, and another said another. "'Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, "'saying, I will entice him. "'And the Lord said to him, By what means? "'And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit "'in the mouth of all his prophets.' And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. Verse 24. Then Zedekiah the son of Shanana came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on the day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, and take him back to Amon, the governor of the, city, and, of governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in the prison, and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house that he had built, and all the cities that he had built, Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Westside. We're glad you're here. If you complain that we read 40 verses today in church, we'll take it as a compliment, right? God forbid we come to church and read a lot of the Bible. That would be crazy, right? Um, so, today is a little bit of a standalone. Next week, we start our series called One and Many, and looking at the body and the life of the church and how there are many members but one body. And so, today is sort of a standalone, and I enjoy these days because I get to go to passages that have spoken to me and that matter a lot to me. And this is actually one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Um, our oldest son, Roman, was actually this close to being Micaiah with his name, because Micaiah is my favorite Old Testament prophet. And so today we're just going to kind of dive in and have a, you know application of God's Word. But maybe to set us up, this will be helpful. This is a picture of Francisco Garzon. And Francisco Garzon, in 2013, made national news. He was a train driver in Spain. And in 2013, he was driving a train that had 218 people on it. The train derailed and crashed, killing 79 people and wounding 66 people. He was a 30-year man. He had driven a train for 30 years. When he was interviewed by the authorities and when the investigation happened, he said these words, I can't explain it. I still don't understand how I didn't see it. I just don't know. We were, everything was going fine until we came up on the curb, and the video records in his uh, train captain's seat. He said, oh, my God, oh, my God, the curve, the curve. I can't make it. And with further investigation, they come to realize that he hit this turn going 115 miles an hour. Now, the reason why that's a problem is because two miles prior to this curb, there were four. Four warning signs for the conductor to slow down. But when you interview him after the crash, I don't know. I didn't realize. And his words in the interview reminded me, oftentimes sitting down with fellow believers and talking about our walk in Christ... I think we end up in a season of life, and there's a number of things that we say. Maybe these sound familiar. The first one, I don't know how it got to this point. How about this? We, We never, ever saw this coming in our family. Or how about this one? I didn't realize that it was this bad. Ever heard that? Ever said that? In in reality, in our walk with Christ, Jesus actually tells us all through the Gospels and even tells His disciples that I've set up some signs for you in this journey and on this road. There's going to be seasons of difficulty, but, well, here, I'll just let Jesus say it in Mark 14. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Here it is. The Spirit is willing... But the flesh is weak. You see, here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus knows, right? And he knows what's coming. And and here's what's crazy. He knows the choices that we're going to make. He knows that probably for the majority of us, we're not going to heed the warning signs. Yet when our life is in shambles on the track and we're sitting there going, I don't know how it got like this. Jesus is there, not with condemnation, but rather to let us know, man, I've had signs here. And so the primary way that he does that for us as believers is, is the book that you hold in your hand. It is the Word of God. You see, the Word of God doesn't just give us life. First Peter teaches that, that we are born not of imperishable seed, but, or I'm sorry, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, the living Word of God. But it's also that the Word of God guides us and guards us in life. That's my thesis today. That's what I believe the big idea in 1 Kings 22 is, is that we have this king who's going out to do something, and he's going to go into battle, but he does this kind of strange thing, right? Jehoshaphat, and by the way, you can be mad at your parents all you want, but they didn't give you the name Jehoshaphat, okay? Right? <laughs> all right? Maybe send mom or dad a text today, right? Appreciate you. Love you. You know what I mean? And so Jehoshaphat says, hey, you know, maybe we should inquire the word of the Lord. And so here's, here's a little bit of the context that we need to know about this Ahab guy. Um, he's, he's all through 1 Kings. He married Jezebel. Like this guy has gone through all types of things. But the context in our passage is important, and here's why. We see Israel is split up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That's why it says Jehoshaphat came down to meet with King Ahab. So they're split, and then a little bit more about Ahab is Ahab was king of Israel for 22 years, 22 years. Now, for all you Bible scholars or people pe- peeking over the fence at Christianity, a lot of us um, sometimes get a little bit of criticism from higher education, which sometimes is a lot like grape nuts, right? It ain't grapes, and it ain't nuts. It's like Christian science. It's not neither. You know what I'm saying? And so sometimes people try to criticize the Bible, and King Ahab is an argument that they use. Well, there's not, there's not a lot of historical evidence. I don't know why he sounds like Richard Nixon. I just did that. I have no idea. Okay? But um, there's, not, there's no historical evidence for King Ahab, right? Okay? Um, actually, um, archaeologists have studied Syrian history. And lo and behold, the Bible's proved true. They were digging over somewhere, real expensive, real deep, and they come across this which is a picture of a ring that's actually on display in Florida at the History of Archaeology. And on that, written in Syrian, is Ahab, king of Israel. So the reason why I tell you this is, listen, this isn't a fairy tale, okay? We're not sitting here going, well, this is a story that God used allegorically to teach us about. Wrong, okay? Real guy, real time, real space, But here's the number one thing that you need to know about Ahab, right? This is the one verse recorded. Like, you had one verse, man, right? Forever in in the history of God's Word, it'll never pass away. And this is what it says. Ahab's a bad dude. That's my translation. But 1 Kings 16.30. And Ahab, the son of Moriah, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than... Than all who were before him, right? You had one job, man, right? One job. But here's what's scary to me: Ahab is king of Israel, God's people. Last week I used an illustration about a rock in a river. You can take a rock out of current river that's been there for 100, 200 years, whatever. You can crack that rock open. That rock is dry as a bone. How could Ahab, king of Israel, who have seen all types of acts done by God, he saw Elijah call down fire from heaven. He has seen some of the greatest miracles in the entire Old Testament. And how could Ahab end with a train wreck, literally, of his life? I believe the central theme of the passage is is the word of the Lord. So if the word of God guards us and guides us in life, what are the characteristics of God's word? And we'll see that today in the passage. God's word's unpopular. It's unchanging. It's unpopular and it's unchanging. And it's always going to prove true. And it's uncontrollable. So those are the three things that we see in the passage. The first thing that we see is this, is God's word's unpopular. Now, you might say, well, of course, to the world it's unpopular, right? Well, look at who is doing this. Verse 5 says, Inquire first the word of the Lord. Now, here it is, verse 6. Have your eyes on Scripture. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. That's incredible, okay? 400 prophets. Now, we need to use that term loosely within this passage. Because these dudes are on the payroll, baby. Right? So here's what Ahab does. Here's what Ahab does. I want to do something. I want to do something. But first, the Christian thing to do is to see if it's within God's will. So if anybody challenges me, I can say, well, it's God's will. I've tested God's will. But what he did to ease his conscience, to have his cake and eat it too, is he paid the prophets. So what a coincidence, right? What I want to do is what the prophets say I should do. This is very convenient for me, right? But God has Micaiah. I love this phrase, man. Like, if there's anything that you could put on my headstone, I think it's fantastic. Verse 8, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There's yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Malai. But I hate him, for he never prophesies anything good concerning me, but evil. So here it is. Ahab's in a community group, right? <laughs> Ahab's got a decision to make, right? Ahab knows who he's going to contact in his community group, and he knows who he's not going to contact either, right? Everybody else got invited to coffee but Micaiah, right? Right? Because Micaiah is the guy who sits at the table and says, yeah, that's stupid. That's, that's, not, that's not a good plan. So here's what's funny. Sure, the word of God is, is unpopular with the world, but here's what I found out. God's word is awfully, oftentimes the most unpopular with God's people. God's word most of the time is mostly unpopular with God's people because we realize that we know that it's good for us and that it's the right thing to do so we have our conscience and it bears weight on our decisions but that selfishness inside of us it grows and it grows and here's what we do we then find people who will agree with what we want and here's what's funny Look at what Ahab says that he hates about Micaiah. He says, I hate him. Why? For he never prophesies anything good concerning me. Here's what I love about the Word of God. This is thousands of years ago, and it's as relevant as 2018. Because here's the lie Ahab has believed, and I believe that primarily us as believers in the church have believed, and it's this. We think that correction means condemnation. That's what we think. And correction is not condemnation. But here's the world in which we live in. Little Johnny needs a cupcake. And little Johnny needs a star next to his name and he needs a trophy. And he needs another cupcake with double sprinkles on top because he's little Johnny. And he's awesome. And did you know that report after report says in sociology that self-esteem has never been the highest... And motivation has never been the lowest within the school systems. How can that be? Because now everything is motivated towards us. And if anybody comes along, including the Word of God, and corrects us, here's what we believe. We believe if you correct me, if you correct me, then you don't support me. And there's the lie. Malcolm Glidewell, a sociologist, says, The great fear in 2018 is this. We no longer desire truth. The friendships that we now make and value are not based upon truth. They are based upon, will you support me or will you not support me? Because if you don't support me, then you must hate me. And that's what Ahab says. Ahab says, I don't like Micaiah because he doesn't, quote, support me. But the reality is, is that all of the analogies of the Word of God in Scripture are about how the Word of God corrects us. That we need this correcting, and this correcting brings truth, and the truth is what we need upon our life. Dale Ralph Davis is an Old Testament scholar, and he's one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, but he comments on this passage, listen to these words one sometimes wonders if the church is drifting back to an Ahab mindset, or if not hostile toward the candor of the Word of God, or maybe even embarrassed by the forthrightness of it. I've received church advertisements in my mail recently. A new church is forming in our area and it's going to feature a lot of things that are going to attract me but the main thing all over the flyer is in big bold letters a non-judgmental atmosphere i know i mustn't overinterpret but what does that mean Likely what they mean is that they want to askew from anything negative, refraining from folks feeling guilty about their actions, or the ultimate 2018 contemporary sin for someone to actually feel bad about what they've done. What would the ministry of the Word of God be like in such a church? Will it ever press home the word of God in its searing honesty? Or must that be sacrificed, lest it destroy the non-judgmental ambiance? Oh my, I believe Ahab would love such a church. Just let it sit in the room for a minute. It's very unpopular, right? Because when the Word of God bears correction upon our life, we have only one of two choices. Only one. And it's to submit to that Word or resist that Word like our fallen parents Adam and Eve did in the garden. And so now, if anybody bears correction out of love, motivated out of love in our life, the Apostle Paul felt this in his pastoral ministry. And there is a verse that he records in Galatians that touches home more for me than anything else that the Apostle Paul has written. And in Galatians 4, he says this to the church that have turned against him Do you hate me now? Do you hate me because I tell you the truth? Let me ask you a question. Are you mad at the person? Or are you mad at the truth that you know that the person is speaking? Dear God, Westside, please don't sacrifice valuable, life-giving relationships. The Word of God guides us in our path. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path because I have kept thine rules, rules, guidance. It guards us and guides us. It is unpopular oftentimes, but it's unpopular because it's unchangeable. That's why. Do you see what happens? Micaiah comes into the threshing floor, verse 13. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold the words of the prophets are with one accord, and they are favorable to the king, right? you got to read it in a Michael Corleone. Let's do it that way. Behold the words of the prophets. He has made us an offer you cannot refuse, right? I need golf balls in my cheeks, right? That's what's happening. He's trying to make a deal with Micaiah. And oh my, let your word be like all the word of them and speak favorably. Listen, There are 400 prophets. 400 of them. Remember, this is not myth. This is fact. There was a moment in Israel where everybody was gathered within the king's courts and there are 400 prophets in robes and there are two men sitting on thrones and Micaiah stands in the middle. And he says, I can't change this. Thus, as the Lord has spoken, so shall I say it. I cannot change this. This is very eerie to Martin Luther at the deity of worms. When the entire Roman Catholic Church had him in the center of the court for the justification by faith alone, and they said, Will you recant? Will you recant upon your words? And he asks for a day. Can I have a day? And he comes back and thunders the words that forever ring true in church history. And he says, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Here I stand for I can do no other. Oh, that sounds good on a t-shirt. But how does it sound when you're in a relationship and you're dating and that other significant other wants to take a next step? But you know, therefore, what the unpopular word of God has been spoken. Do we stand and say, as the Lord speaks, so then shall I say this? Listen, here's what we have to understand as Christians, and I fear that we fall back into it often, is this. We are not God's editors. You know that, right? Like, ask yourself this question. Are you ashamed of the Word of God? When somebody sits down at a table and they say, Yeah, well, I think, doesn't God's Word say this about money? What do you do in that moment? Ah, well, I know some people, some people. Oh, some 400 prophets. Where are the Micaiah's, man? Where are the young men? I don't need any more boys at Westside, okay? we got enough devastation of immaturity here in the church. Where are the Micaias who stand forth with a conviction of a word of God? Who says, I will raise my family, I will love my wife, and I'll hold down a job for 30 years and I'll go to the grave tired. And I'll do it for the glory of God. Where are the young women, men, who will stand as a young prophet in 2018? And say, my value is not upon anything, but it is upon the word of God. Westside, I come before you in the spirit of a prophet today. My heart is broken. Do we shy away from this word? Yes, it is unpopular because it is uncontrollable. And the reason why we try to change it is because we think this. We think God's word takes us from our joy. That's fundamentally what we believe. We make a decision based only upon one thing, desire. And what wins out in the ultimate desire? And we believe that this has too many rules and parameters. And there's no way that you can't live together before you get married. Are you kidding me, Jason? We have the internet now. No way. 10% of your income and then more? No way. you got to be kidding me. And so what we think is this takes us from true, true joy. What's funny is one secular psychologist by the name of Barry Schwartz gave a TED talk. And he wrote a book called The Paradox of Choices. He talked about how some companies are successful and some companies are not. Bear in mind, Barry Schwartz is not a believer. He's not even talking about the word of God. But Barry, at the end of his TED Talk, showed a picture of a fishbowl with two fish in it. And the whole thesis of his book is, the freedom of choice with no parameters always leads to poor choices. Every company that m- makes a choice based upon autonomy and freedom ends up failing as a company. Every successful company always has guardrails, and guidelines. And he uses this illustration at the end of his TED Talk. He says, there are two fish in a fishbowl. What if I were to take a hammer and smash the fishbowl and free the fish? There are now no more parameters for these fish. They are completely and utterly free. How well does that go? Not well. And his whole argument is, the best choices have guardrails and parameters. So listen, West Side. True freedom, true freedom is found in total submission to God's Word. I have like one message every Sunday all the time. And it's Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to man and in the end it's going to kill everyone. Everyone dies. Unless we have the guardrails of God's Word. Yes, it's unpopular. And it's unchanging. But the hope for us is that it's unchanging. I'm sorry, that's uncontrollable. But the hope is the third point, that it's unchanging. Do you see what Micaiah says in verse 28? And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Do you know what he's doing? He's going back to Deuteronomy where Moses gives the criteria of a prophet. If a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't become true, he is to be dragged to the city gates and stoned to death. I think that's a great thing we should interpret in 2018, right? I'm just kidding, right? I'm just kidding. All the presidential elections and the blood moons and all kinds of stuff, right? And Micaiah just drops Mike. He says, if you come back, I'm wrong. If you come back, I'm wrong. And then look at verse 34. It's like an M. Night Shaloman movie. Final Destination stuff right here. Verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor, and the breastplate. Question, was that random? No. Another application of this is the word of God destroys the man who defies it. That's, that's the parable here. And then read this, right? This is great. Explain this to your kids when you get home. Verse 38, And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord. Mic drop, right? That's intense. But why is that repeated over and over and over again? To show you that it proves true. Listen, Westside, you know what my only hope is to get into this pulpit Sunday after Sunday? Sunday after Sunday, to pound one nail, is to say this. Every word of God has either been proven true or will be. It's my only hope. That is my only hope, to stand here Sunday after Sunday and say it's true. Listen, time, time reveals that. And all time has done for the Word of God is constantly reveal it. And you say, Jason, that was so long ago. How do we know? How do we really know? John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth west side look at me ahab had the prophets we now live on this side of the cross the son of god and the word of god how much more so will we be held accountable for the signs that we keep driving past So what's the application for this as the band comes and leads us in a time of response? I believe there's two questions. The first one is this. Where is God guiding you to that you don't want to go? If God's word guides us and guards us, where is God's word currently in your life right now guiding you to that you're resisting and don't want to go? Maybe you've even tried to gather your own 400 prophets. Maybe you've even tried to look at the stars and try to find everything else other than where it is in black and white. Where is that? Is it an issue of unforgiveness? Is it sharing Christ with someone? Is it your marriage? Where is that area that God is leading you to? The different side of the same coin is, what is God guarding you from that you actually deep down desire and want? Because until you recognize that see the sign that stands above it, only then do you see the Jesus at the end of the road. What's so sad for me is the story of Ahab is that he's gone. 22 years. Gone. He's buried. We don't know where his tomb is. We don't know any of that. Because he franked Sinatra and did it his way. But I can take you to another tomb. door's open. Ain't nobody inside. Because His Word proved true. He took our penalty and our sin. He's coming back. The Word of God guides us and guards us in life. Heavenly Father, we love You and we thank You for Your Word. For some of us in here today, it is a sign of comfort that we're on this track of life and we're driving... I mean, we needed assurance. Maybe the sign says, don't give up. Don't give up. I'm here, don't give up. And for some of us, it's a sign of warning. Slow down. Heed my word. Because I love you. Because I love you. What's in common at the end of the day is that it's good no matter what. Holy Spirit, have your way with us as we come to the table and we see the Word made flesh, not just black and white on paper, but broken and bloody in this cup and on this plate as we know that all of God's promises hold true. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand where you're at and come forward and partake in communion as you feel led?